Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. When bad winds blow, we'll be there at the show. show by Southern Backtones. It's from their 2012 album La Vie en Noir, available on Apple Music. A rather somber song there, so we need to pump some extra energy into this episode and bring us up from that. So how are you feeling today? You energetic, ready to go? I am pumped up and ready to go. Very good. Well, we played the monster show because there is a, I would call it a seminal book, written by the author David J. Skull called The Monster Show. We're going to talk quite a bit about that in the episode with the author of that book, David J. Skull. Yeah, we are stirring things up a little bit for the Halloween season. We've got not one, but two episodes for you again this month. Rather than talk movies, we had an opportunity to, to speak with him, and that makes for a fantastic episode. We're going to kind of also take elements of that and, and talk a little bit later on at the end of the show about reference books. We're going to be talking about our favorite reference books. For some people, you know, reference books is something in the past. And I know we've got a few guests have called in that'll be kind of expressing that. I've got a different opinion on reference books. You know what? I still use them over the internet because there are some things that you just can't find over the internet. So I want to talk about that when we get to, to that part later on in the show. We're talking about books and authors and, and going to have a great episode 49 as we get closer and closer to Halloween and episode 50. That's right. And we'll have more details about that later. Before we get to our highlight that interview, let's go through some of our regular old business. We have quite a few new members this this episode, and that's fantastic. I'd like to welcome them here personally. We try to do it on the Facebook group page, but uh, sometimes miss it. Welcome formally to Nick Emilio, Matthias Johnson, Giovanni Ruiz, Herstellar von Monstern, Ken Johnson, Taylor Yakawinko, Corey Skelton, and Ron Hall. Apologies for any mispronunciations. Welcome to the club, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Von Monster. I mean, you, you kind of have to be a horror movie fan with that. <laughs> Welcome. I know we, we continue to have conversation over on the Facebook. You know, we continue to have our good friends calling in, and, and I know we've got people listening. So thank you, one and all. 
We do also have uh, some feedback this month, some uh, voicemails that were left. They were able to do this by calling 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. With apologies. So if we were doing Mr. video, that would have been a perfect shot. Yes, it would have been. And with apologies to uh, Stephen Sullivan, I have to say, inspired by, because in my head, I'm hearing the, the classic five when I say that. Yes, and speaking of Steve Sullivan, he is one of the people that left a little feedback about our last episode, where we talked about TV horror films, the new fall TV season. We spoke of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. We spoke a little bit about its remake, and Steve had a comment or two to share about that. Let's listen to it right now. I uh, recently watched the uh, remake of um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, and it was it was okay, uh, you know a lot of CGI little monsters. I kind of like the the brown Jenkins look of them that they were kind of little rat like creatures. But it, I didn't really I didn't really find it as scary as the original. Of course, you know I'm like 50 years older now, so there is that. <laughs> but uh, it was it was still worth seeing, and I liked it. And I I'll probably watch it again. Maybe I'll pay uh, a little more strict attention to this next time. But uh, I, I think I still prefer the Kim Darby one. Anyway, that's it for now. Have a, a great Halloween season. As everyone stay safe and well. Steve Sullivan, signing off. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. And I know that you, you commented as well on Facebook about the creatures and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and the remake and how, you know, my thought was that the additional background on the characters was... I thought it was needed a little bit, and I thought it was well handled in the movie, the uh, remake, and how I, I kind of felt like, you know, we needed a little something more. And I know that you disagreed, and I think that's that's perfectly fine. You feel like the original still worked in that regards, that we didn't need to know more about who they were. You know, I can see both sides of that. I, I personally felt like maybe a little bit more would have been interesting, but understanding the limitations as we talked about last episode you're dealing with a 75 minute movie there's only so much you can do in 75 minutes with limited budgets and stuff I guess it depends on on your mood at the time I know when I watched it I wanted a little bit more and I felt like that was one thing that the remake did right still a fun movie though I, I still I still love the original even if it didn't wear quite as well for me on this viewing I think it's still a, a great flick and I also like Steve's point, and I think we emphasized it last time as well, that so many of us saw that as a child and the impact that has. I mean, we all know movies that have stuck with us from seeing them in childhood and pretty consistently, regardless of how they look now, those monsters in the original terrified a group of people. That's kind of cool, I think. That shows the power of these movies and on fertile young imaginations making people what they are today. To Steve's point, I think he could be right in the sense that, you know, sometimes uh, use your imagination to fill in the background story. That's kind of uh, one thing that I'm doing right now this month on the 31 Days of Halloween, which I know we'll talk about at the end of the show, kind of what we're doing. But old-time radio shows, you know, they, they had a 30-minute format typically, so there's only so much they could throw at you. And because of the format, you had to use, you know, your imagination, as they used to call it, the theater of your mind, or imagination theater. A lot of people have called, you know, different things. 
you've got to kind of fill in the gaps yourself. And that, that allows more creative people to be able to say, well, this is what I imagine the background of these characters to be. And uh, I think that's kind of a fun thing to do. The more I think about it, Steve Sullivan might, might be onto something more uh, as I'm tying it into old time radio. Cause I always, the creatures that don't be afraid of the dark always remind me of the shadow people episode from hall of fantasy, which uh, is a classic old time radio show. Creepy as all get out. And it's going to be one of the shows I'm going to feature later this month. The whispering creatures that you see in the corner of your eye and, and only are there at dark. Yeah, very similar. I still say there had to be maybe some inspiration. I'd love to know the writer if they'd ever heard that episode. Might not have been. I mean, because a lot of those old time radio shows in the early 70s were just starting to become available for people to listen to unless you listen to it originally. And that was not necessarily one of the more common shows. Hall of Fantasy is, is known more today now than I think it was probably known then. I digress. <laughs> no, surely not. not <laughs> Absolutely. Either one of us don't digress. No. Just taking that imagination thing one step further, we're going to talk about this later, but uh, our esteemed guest uh, spoke to that very fact the other night when he was introducing cat people on TCM. That is the perfect example of imagination and using the lights and shadow to conjure things in your minds that you never see. Great point. Steve, appreciate your, your feedback. We have another voicemail from our friend, Jonathan. This goes back a little further, uh, timing and everything. Uh, we didn't do the best to get it posted, but he's going to reference our drive-in episode where we talked about the kaiju films, Destroy All Monsters and... Face Amoeba. Jonathan, and I think, I'm sure we referenced then, is a, a huge kaiju fan. Let's hear what he had to say about that episode. Hey guys, it's Jonathan, just calling in after listening to your Kaiju podcast. It's a great, great episode. I think you did real justice to uh, Destroy All Monsters and Space Amoeba. And I'm glad you guys enjoyed both. I mean, I know Destroy All Monsters is super popular. Space Amoeba is a little more obscure, I guess, as Kaiju films go. But I'm so glad you guys really enjoyed it. It makes me want to revisit them. I think I, think I mentioned that in my last feedback that... Space Amoeba was not a film that I remember seeing on TV, and I would have remembered that. So for whatever reason, on our local station, Space Amoeba didn't didn't quite make it there. But no, that was a that was a great episode, and some uh, tidbits that I hadn't things I hadn't known before that you guys uh, shed some light on. So that was very cool. And that's about all I have. Um, on a side note, I am about two hundred and seventy-five or 280 episodes into Dark Shadows. I'm chipping away. I don't, I only have maybe a thousand episodes left. So uh, I, I'll watch a few episodes in clusters, uh, but then I, you know, like to diversify and actually watch films and other things when we have time, stellar permitting. Um, so it's going to take me a while, but I've accepted that right now. Barnabas Collins has designs on Vicky Winters, so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Still pretty, a bit of a nasty character, uh, but I'll be curious. Apparently he evolves and it's more complex as the show goes on, so I'm curious about that. Um, and uh, Burke Devlin, the actor that played, I think his last name is Mitchell, or maybe his first name is Mitchell. The actor that was playing Burke Devlin is now gone. I understand that the that actor 
had a drinking problem and got fired from the show, which is a shame because he was great. Uh, it's Burke Devlin, um, his replacement. His name escapes me. It's all right, and, you know, we'll see where it goes. But, um, yeah, I'm enjoying it. So that's my very brief, quick and dirty Dark Shadows update. Okay, that's all I got. I hope you guys, this is Labor Day weekend. I hope you're having a great weekend. Obviously, when you play this, it will not be Labor Day weekend. Um, But I hope you're doing well, and I'm really looking forward to the next episode. Okay, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jonathan, for your kaiju thoughts. I absolutely know that you're... You are a bigger kaiju fan, I think, than Jeff or I are, although Jeff and I love them. You're more knowledgeable, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I think you definitely know your kaiju films. You know, maybe with this this newfangled Zoom technology, maybe we could have him on as a guest in a future kaiju episode and really pick his brain a little bit, have him pick some of his kaiju favorites. That might be something fun. If you're listening, Jonathan, are you up for that? That might be something fun we could do. Just because he's commenting on a few episodes back, I think this is a good point As uh, to just reiterate again. We don't care how old the topic is. If you want to call in with your thoughts on King Kong. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, the episodes are out there, and we know that you might be a new listener, and maybe you're working your way through the backlog, which we'd be flattered and honored if you would. And if you got thoughts on something we've talked about years ago, don't hesitate to call in. I know I always do uh, with podcasts because I'm always behind and I shouldn't because I know we love to get feedback and we just encourage it. Let us know what your thoughts are, whether it's the last episode or 20 episodes back. We don't care. We just want to hear from you. And speaking of wanting to hear from people, I want to hear from our special guests and I bet our listeners do too. Why don't we take a break and we will come back with our interview with author David J. Skull. Is that all right with you? That sounds fantastic. Oh! Children of the night, what music they make. Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. You sure are I'm sure that you've been shown That I can be trusted Walking with you alone Oh! Little Red Riding Hood You sure are looking good You're everything that a big bad wolf would want Oh! 
dog to stop his howling. Our very special guest today is David J. Skull, award-winning author and film historian who burst onto the monster kid scene in 1990 with his book, Hollywood Gothic, The Tangled Web of Dracula, from novel to stage to screen. He has since written a number of books about classic horror films and has written, directed, and produced 13 documentary shorts for Universal Monsters home video releases. His most recent book is Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. Please welcome to the Classic Horrors Club podcast, David J. Skull. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for spending some time with us this afternoon. Well, thank, thank you for asking. I'm usually on the road this time of the year and uh, going to conventions and bookstores, and I get to actually meet up with the people who read my books face to face. That isn't happening this year, as, uh, as you noticed, but uh, this is turning out pretty good. Uh, Zoom is, is, has really saved the day, not just for me, but for a lot of people. I've been impressed at the ingenuity, the way that people are finding new ways to communicate and deliver information. Uh, so there have some, been some good things come out of these circumstances. Well, I've even, I've even got a green screen. I was going to say, you, you win the, the award for best green screen. That's, that's a fantastic back cover there. It's really good. And I'm do, doing this all on an iPad. And it's unbelievable. I wish I had this kind of thing back when I was doing my documentaries. They would have uh, <laughs> gone so much faster and so much more less expensive. Well, you're commenting on the, uh, the environment that we're in and how people are, are adapting. And I think one of the best parts is that if you can't be out in person meeting people face to face, it's as you said, these, these uh, Zoom sessions, the podcast and appearances that you're making, people are doing some wonderful things with online film festivals. Um, an opportunity for, yeah, I think it was the Cinecon Film Festival was a few weeks ago, they did it online. Something that was on my personal bucket list, wanting to attend for years uh, and could never make it out there that time of year. You know, this is kind of a, I guess, a good thing that's happened. It's, it's allowed some people to be able to participate in some of these events where uh, normally they wouldn't. So if there's, if there's a silver lining in the, in the cloud of 2020, I think it would be the uh, incorporating technology and people interconnecting that way. Well, I'm getting used to watching first-run films, uh, especially art, art house films. Uh, the Lemley chain uh, now has a virtual uh, cinema, and uh, each week they've got three or four films that they ordinarily would have been showing in their, their theaters. And uh, it's not quite the same thing as being there, but uh, I've got a pretty big home screen, uh, not as big as many, and uh, it's it's going to become a way of life. Uh, this is going to be the way we're going to watch a lot of live theater too. But uh, yeah, it's changing. Yeah. I know we have the same here in Kansas city. We've got several uh, art houses that are all owned by the same uh, company and none of them have reopened. Most of them are smaller theaters and wouldn't be conducive to social distancing. And so they've done the same thing. They've gone online and, and, uh, people are being able to see, uh, see movies that way. And I think in some cases, movies they wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. Um, so again, I think it's, it's that silver lining. If we have to, have to make it through 2020, I think there are some good things that are happening and, and certainly changing maybe our viewing habits a little bit. Maybe for, you know, but in some cases for some people for the better, so. It's, uh, well, it's a brave new world. I hope it doesn't uh, continue with this intensity uh, for too much longer. <laughs> But uh, 
it's, it's amazing. Uh, book sales are actually doing pretty well. Um, you would have thought it'd be just the opposite. Uh, it was at the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic, uh, publishers were just reporting desperate, desolate uh, kind of drops in sales. And now uh, it's up to 6% higher than the same time last year. So uh, my industry is getting uh, at least a little bit of optimism. And uh, I hope I, there will be some more books after this one. I've gotten so used to doing one every year. Um, I'm not sure what I do except uh, go online and uh, talk about them. I don't think I could actually do a book online, but uh, I'm experimenting. I'm going to be doing some kind of streaming video every day of the month of October, uh, which wow. ties in with the book, which is a kind of a count, has a countdown format, uh, 31 films in 31 days leading up to Halloween. And actually there are 62 because we just couldn't uh, agree completely on uh, only 31. So there is a, uh, if you enjoyed this, you might enjoy this uh, kind of tag on to each one. And then uh, within the bodies of each chapter, we talk about, uh, uh, you know, a whole series of films. So probably talk about as many as 100 films in the course of the book. But That's uh, one of my favorite parts is that, that, you know, if you enjoy this, then you might enjoy this. It's almost like you're giving people a double feature. You know, if they were going to follow along your, with your book over the course of the 31 days of Halloween, essentially you're giving them a double feature at the very least that they can enjoy. And then... You know, some of the choices, um, you know, as I was going through, I was like, well, that, you know, obviously, yes, that's a strong connection. There were some that I thought were, were very interesting, um, you know, that, that um, I might not have thought of right away. You know, uh, some of the pairings that, that I thought were, were unique. I just, I think that this is a great primer for anyone who, um, you know, sometimes you, you, you enter the Halloween season and, and if you're a horror movie fan, you want to experience something new. Sometimes you just want that, that warm blanket, right? That, that comfortable film, film that you might be familiar with. And, uh, and some of these are just a great pairing. Uh, I, think, uh, I think anybody, you know, whether they're a horror movie fan for a long time or, or just getting into it, I think will, would absolutely enjoy the, uh, enjoy the format of the book. No, I, I think a lot of them would actually make pretty damn good double features if double features in the cinemas come back to us at, at some point. Um, the, uh, I like doing things like uh, pairing cat people with a girl walks home alone at night. Yes. Uh, and uh, um, these just kind of came to me <laughs> kind of out of the blue. Uh, but I, I've never actually done film programming, but um, I might like to do that someday if someone would let me. Well, I love the, uh, the choice of Suspiria uh, tying that with uh, Black Sunday. Uh, that, I thought that was, Suspiria is a film for me that, it took me probably, I think, four viewings before I really could say that I enjoyed it. You know, my first time seeing it, it was a bad copy and uh, the, the sound was off and that you've got to have, a you know, uh, that movie has, has to have a good sound system, I think, to really encompass the experience. And the next time I saw a slightly better copy, a slightly better sound, the time I got to the most recent one, it's like it, it clicked with me. And I, Jeff and I were at a movie theater, and I'm like, 
okay, now, now I get what people were saying several years ago about this movie. And I felt like I was just the oddball in the bunch. It's like, why, what am I missing? Um, and I think with anything, as Jeff and I often talk on the podcast, movies, which you may not enjoy today, you might enjoy tomorrow. I mean, different frame of mind, different experience over and wiser. You see more films, you start to expand your palette and, and things that you might not have enjoyed at one time, you're going to enjoy more now that you have experienced other films, maybe similar to it or with a particular actor or actress or director. Well, I, I agree with you that Suspiria gets better and better with each release. And I was really privileged a couple of years ago, I was uh, a judge at the, uh, the Sitges uh, Festival of uh, Fantastic Cinema in, uh, in Barcelona. And they debuted the most recent uh, remastering, uh, completely juiced up print of Suspiria with uh, Dario Argento himself uh, introducing it and uh, Guillermo del Toro on stage introducing him. And uh, it, was, it was really, I didn't have my camera whipped out the moment that uh, uh, del Toro welcomed him on stage and as they approached, just grabbed him in a big bear hug and lifted him up off the ground. <laughs> and uh, it, it, was, it was just a priceless moment. But the, uh, the film, the first time I saw it years ago, I just thought it was one of the most striking and weird movies. But uh, it was absolutely at the top of my list uh, with Black Sunday. Those are the two films to me that kind of say, okay, the heart and soul you know, of Italian horror film is what what made that consist of? But uh, there are so many others. Uh, the other uh, Ababa films and, uh, and Argento, of course, and, uh, and Argento's son, and uh, it goes on and on and on. I, uh, uh, over here, it just seems that American audiences just aren't as familiar with, with the Italian heritage as they are with the, the British heritage. You know, Hammer kind of uh, dominates the discussion and appreciation of, of, uh, of uh, cross-Atlantic uh, horror, but uh, I think the more the merrier. And uh, so I did include a number of, number of foreign films in here, and uh, it is, it's not an encyclopedia, you know, it's, it's 31 films, it can't be everything to everybody, but um, I hope it might be the start of a series. It's gotten uh, wonderful feedback so far. People are enjoying it. It's, it's different than a lot of my other books because I don't go into the, the kind of excruciating historical detail. Uh, and, uh, but I did get to use a lot, of, uh, a lot of research notes that I wasn't able to uh, cram into some other books. And uh, the demographic, uh, uh, Turner Classic Movies, along with Running Press, uh, is the publisher. And they're, they were very interested in going after a, a wide demographic. And that's why we have a number of uh, family-friendly uh, films in here as well. And this is really, is, this is for the fans. You know, I dedicated it to uh, monster kids everywhere. You know who you are. And, the, uh, and I hope that they will enjoy it as much as uh, I enjoyed writing it. But it's also for the people who haven't uh, uh, dipped into the genre as much as uh, they want. And now that they're trapped at home, what better way to do to do October, but to uh, introduce uh, yourself to all of these, these, these wonderful films. So 
there we are. And uh, true to what they're saying about the publishing industry, people are, 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 are really uh, going after this thing. And uh, it went on sale September 1st and uh, the promotion will continue through, through Halloween. And uh, let's uh, cross our fingers for what happens after that, because we have the other scary holiday, uh, election day coming up. <laughs> Is that family friendly though? I don't know if that would classify. We're gonna, I don't think so. this time around, no. No. It might uh, end up, but. Uh, <laughs> you said several things that I wanna ask you about. Uh, first of all, did you see the sequel or the remake of Suspiria? And what did you think of that? Yeah, I, I did. I thought it was an interesting film I, uh, bef before I started writing my books, I was uh, up to my eyeballs in uh, performing arts uh, promotion. And I worked for a lot of dance companies. And I think the thing that, about Suspiria that always struck me is that there's no dance company on earth that uh, operates this way or has these kinds of classes or, or, uh, uh, or training or lack of training or whatever the hell it is. It's, uh, it's just somebody who has no idea what is involved in uh, professional dance uh, might think of. And uh, I think the new one suffers a bit because it is, it is a more uh, believable uh, company. And uh, Tilda Swinton is uh, uh, quite a bit like she'd make a very good, uh, in real life, I think she'd make a good postmodern uh, choreographer. Uh, but the, uh, it, not every film needs to be remade. Remastered, sure. Re-released, sure. But um, it, it wasn't a bad film. I just didn't uh, go nuts over it. And that was my next question. What do you think about the phenomenon in general of, of remaking movies? What, what constitutes or is a good reason to remake a horror movie? Well, they're remade because the first one made money and it's a lot easier to um, do something again. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, the, uh, I'm not sure that's a good artistic choice. Although some directors like Todd Browning did this all the time. He revisited the same um, themes and the same kind of characters, the same kind of camera shots. Uh, it was almost like he was superstitiously recycling. His, his own stuff and he uh, and it turned into a, a very coherent and uh, distinct piece of work. I uh, chose uh, Mark of the Vampire to pair with with uh, Dracula and it very much is a remake of Dracula and Browning probably had some reasons to want to have remade it or had another another shot at it. It, uh, it shows you by MGM almost bought the rights to Dracula and it's amazing to wonder what the film would have been like if it had been made over at Metro. Um, I, they, would, they would have used Cheney, of course, but uh, Van Helsing, I think Lionel Barrymore maybe. And, uh, but the Mark of the Vampire has a much, uh, uh, much more lush Gothic atmosphere uh, than, than Dracula does. It's almost over the top. I, it, it, it really kind of uh, embodies the whole sensibility, you know, we, uh, I call it Hollywood Gothic. And uh, it's, it's an enjoyable little picture. Uh, 
like Dracula, it was cut about 15 minutes. And uh, Browning always had that to grumble about. And you also mentioned the um, the book maybe be appealing to a wide audience. Uh, I I perceive it from one perspective as it has good bite-sized chunks, you know, about these horror movies. And I wonder if you have any comment on, you know, a new generation with very short attention spans that um, may not, you know, have the time to feel like they want to invest do you, in books and even with horror movies. What do you think that's changed the uh, production of those at all? Um, well, it's certainly you know, affected uh, the number of people who read fiction, I think, is, uh, is, it's one of the reasons I turned to nonfiction is that I had been a novelist previously and gotten good reviews, but uh, I couldn't make uh, anywhere near the money that I was able to do on uh, uh, nonfiction projects. And uh, nonfiction really is the bread and butter of, of uh, publishing these days and uh, has been for quite a while. The, uh, I don't know if it's attention span as much as it is uh, cinematic uh, vocabulary. I've taught a number of courses at the uh, undergraduate and graduate level based on my books. And a lot of the students are encountering these old movies uh, for the very first time. And uh, when I taught my monster show class at uh, Trinity College Dublin, the, uh, the students were, almost every single one of them, hadn't even been born when the Francis Coppola Dracula came out. And uh, so that was a new experience for them. And they had never heard of Karloff or Lugosi. Maybe they'd heard the names, but they'd never watched the films a lot. Some of them told me they'd never watched a black and white movie in their life, you know? It, it's a... Uh, so they don't seem to be demanding shorter and shorter films, although I think exhibitors would like them. I mean, one reason so many films were only, you know, the, the original horror classics were only an hour or uh, 75 minutes long was because they got to do that many more screenings during a day. And today it's just the opposite. You think uh, the multiplexes would be demanding shorter films, but we have these bloated I, I think two hours is about as far as you, anybody needs for a, for, a, for a feature film. And yet we have these two and a half hour, 245, almost three hour films. These, uh, and, and, and they're bloated and it's not really necessary. And um, you, they can't hold your attention span and you are gonna go get popcorn or you are gonna go to the restroom. And uh, so the, the spell is gonna be broken some way or somehow along the, along the process. You mentioned the, the monster show. So you, you taught a class based on your book? Yes, I did it twice. I did it at the uh, University of Victoria up in, uh, up in Vancouver Island. And I did it in Ireland at Trinity College. Uh, I was there, uh, I had a research fellowship to work on my uh, Bram Stoker biography. And uh, they asked me, well, while you're here, would you like to teach a course? And I said, well, yeah, do I wanna teach a course at one of the uh, ancient universities of, of uh, Western civilization? Of course I do. 
Uh, and they said, oh, it's, and you don't have to prepare much. It's, it's pretty, it's mostly watching films. Well, it turned out to be a big, big time commitment, but I enjoyed every minute of it. And um, um, the, especially when, when you're dealing with uh, uh, students, uh, I guest lectured at a lot of American schools, but I don't find the students to be anywhere near as prepared for college work as uh, they are in, uh, in Canada and in uh, Ireland and, uh, and, and the UK. Do, uh, I'm not a real academic, so I don't have to worry about it. I play one on TV pretty well. <laughs> and I get a lot of dear professor, dear doctor, uh, dear doctor letters, but, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm, I know I'm doing something unusual because there are books of the type that I write don't usually cross over between uh, academia and, and, um, and the fans. And uh, I seem to have done that. Uh, it's probably because I avoid academic jargon. I'm really writing to be accessible. And I'm writing to tell stories. I use a lot of, my, you know, as a fiction writer, I, I like to use novelistic techniques uh, because all of these histories are personality driven. And there are so many uh, uh, quirky and uh, obsessed and even demented people uh, who uh, you know, populated the horror genre, and uh, and they're fun, they're fun to write about. Yeah, the monster show was very influential to me. I had gone, I was a monster kid growing up, and then had gone through you know a period of growing up and kind of putting them aside. And then when I discovered the monster show, it just fascinated me and, and stimulated my imagination all over again. Just the whole concept of you know why is horror so popular. How do horror movies reflect what's going on in um, our society at the time? And and that that's what I got out of that book. So many interesting concepts and explanations. Uh, yeah, and I discovered them as I went along. I didn't uh, set out to write the book that I ended up writing. I had a very good editor who pointed some things out, and he said maybe you want to develop this a little bit more. But the the, the turning point in in the book came when I started writing about the decade, uh, the 1960s, when I originally got interested myself. And I, uh, monsters never terrified me. I was, I was thought them as, uh, you know, they're, they're pals. They're, they're very friendly uh, uh, kind of imaginary playmates. But uh, I forgot what really did scare me. And it was, the, it was the Cold War. And I went back and started going through the trade papers and realized that the, my introduction to these films came at the height of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. And uh, we were being told daily that, uh, you know, we might be blown off the face of the earth at any moment. And uh, uh, so in a way, you know, the uh, uh, Count Dracula's crypt was uh, effectively supplanted and replaced by a fallout shelter. Uh, but m monsters were beings that couldn't die, you know, and uh, Dracula himself, he was the one who was in control. Um, most of the monsters are out of control and uh, uh, teenage kids are out of control in all kinds of ways, uh, hormonally and otherwise. And uh, the various monsters speak to, you know, various adolescent qualities 
and uh, in my case, you know, Dracula just seemed to have have uh, a grip on everything. And he could stare down the atom bomb, uh, I'm sure. And uh, and it was like, oh wow, something else was going on here. And I went back and looked at all the other decades, and sure enough, major uh, crises and cataclysms and uh, cultural upheavals inevitably set in motion or uh, paralleled uh, certain developments in frightening entertainment. And uh, so I think monsters have been a kind of a lightning rod for, for anxieties uh, that we don't like to think about too directly, but in, on an imaginative plane, we can uh, at least uh, you know, exercise them briefly or at least get through the night. And, uh, and that has kind of been the underlying thesis of the, everything I've written about uh, horror uh, ever since. How do you feel updates to include more recent decades or uh, where does the book stop? I did one, I brought it up uh, in, in 04, I brought it up to date through uh, Gods and Monsters, which uh, was a film I had the privilege of actually working on. I, I produced the uh, behind the scenes documentary on it. And uh, there was a wonderful line that Ian McKellen gave when uh, uh, someone asked him about monsters and he shook his head and he just pointed up here and said, the only monsters are here. And I thought that was a great way to end the revised version. But now we're many years later, uh, the book is, it's been in print in, um, well, in three years, it will have its 30th anniversary in print, which is also crazy because uh, um, the kind of books I write usually don't go more than a printing or two. And uh, this one has, uh, has just uh, renewed its audience and readership over and over and over. And uh, so I'm talking to the, uh, my agent and, and the publisher about what we might do to uh, um, bring it into the present, uh, or whether that's really the thing to do with it, because it's not an encyclopedia and it really does deal with 20th century horror, and maybe that's a good bracket for it. But I think it needs some kind of new um, introduction or epilogue at the very least, and uh, we'll, uh, be getting to that uh, quickly. All of my books have to be revised at some point. That's the difficulty with things staying in print. <laughs> they do become dated uh, and you, you, you're, you're really obligated. Uh, my uh, Todd Browning book, uh, Dark Carnival, is about to be re-released in a, a limited edition uh, art book format by uh, Centipede Press out in Colorado and uh, it's you know, the ultimate uh, monster movie book as far as I'm concerned, because I, it it's, it's just has this museum quality presentation and I was able to wildly expand it and uh, had access to Todd Browning's uh, personal photograph collection and his scrapbooks and uh, left no stone unturned. And I think Browning himself remains as enigmatic uh, as ever, but uh, we will be uh, will be showing the world uh, things they've never seen in terms of uh, visuals, and uh, it's just it's it's a beautiful format. I'm very excited about it. It'll 
probably be out uh, toward the beginning of next year. Richard, I know you have a question. I'm sorry, I've got one more thing I want to ask about Monster Show. Uh, I might answer it myself here, but it, talking about future editions or adding decades, what in the world do you make of 2020? What do you think impact that's going to have? Uh, I don't know if we can even imagine. I, I also wonder, though, in a way, it's sort of self-fulfilling. I mean, a lot of the things we're seeing, a virus, you know, that keeps us quarantined, that we've seen that in horror movies, and it's now coming to life, you know, for real. No, all of the, all of the horror themes and tropes have just jumped off the screen and, uh, uh, you know, bit us in the ass, basically, in the last, the last year. There are so many uh, horror-related themes playing themselves out in so many different ways. Uh, and it's amazing how the, I'm actually, you ask how I'm dealing with it. I'm uh, writing a book. It's called uh, I Hear America Screaming, The Politics of Horror. And um, I think early on in the Trump administration, I did a Google search and found there were already 10,000 citations of uh, dual appearances of the word Frankenstein and Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as uh, either the GOP was, was Dr. Frankenstein and Trump was the monster or uh, uh, he's a mad scientist or a vampire himself. I mean, it's just, and it's just, uh, and that was four years ago. And I can barely keep up with, with uh, the developments because every day, I could, uh, I, I could base, I could do a new chapter every week and this would become a book that would go on so long, nobody could deal with it. But I think the uh, people are, uh, people are scared, people are confused um, and people have generally used the horror genre and scary entertainment to kind of soften the blow of things that, uh, may be really unmanageable in the real world. And uh, I think we're just seeing so much of this on so many levels. I wanted to piggyback on that because I know you, you've talked about, um, you know, how current events play into, um, into horror films. And, and for example, World War I being an inspiration for, for a lot of the earlier horror films. You know, modern day warfare is very different um, than traditional wars, World War One, World War Two. You know, it's kind of like we knew who the good guys were, the bad guys were. There was a beginning, there was an end. It, it seems with contemporary warfare, it's very different. How do you feel in that in that aspect? Those are, you know, influencing contemporary horror films. Is it something that is much like World War One and, and, and even World War Two did, are we seeing that with with contemporary warfare, or is it is it different because the modern day warfare is different? Well, every, remember every every war uh, trumps the last, and World War One was considered the war to end all wars, and people just had exactly the same kind of um, uh, anxiety and and. And, and feelings of dread about it. Uh, what was it going to lead to? We are almost at the end of the world. The end of the world has all, always been uh, just around the corner. Uh, if you uh, look back at history and, and uh, people are all, all 
people are ready to anticipate the worst. I think that, uh, you know, there are these primal human anxieties uh, and, uh, and, and threats, war, famine, disease. Uh, you can find uh, ways in which uh, horror movies have ex exploited all of these. Uh, we're, right now we're just kind of living through these things, this, this create, we have uh, this, uh, this unbelievable, you know, pandemic that's uh, threatens to be on the level of the, of the um, 1918 flu, uh, which was a horror story in and of itself. And um, who'd have thought that the president of the United States might be waging biological warfare against American citizens, but that's not too much of a push considering what's going on here. And uh, conspiracy theories, and my God, the paranoia. Uh, we, we have a very wide swath of the American population uh, behaving like pod people. Exactly. Really, in, in real time, in real life. You know, a lot of the events that we're experiencing this year, we've experienced to one degree or another in the past, whether it's, um, you know, racial issues or politics in general. It just seems like everything is kind of, you know, kind of cranked up to an 11 this year and everything's happening at once. And then you throw in the mix of social media, which can be a wonderful tool that, you know, allows people to connect, uh, but it can also be, I think, uh, uh, a negative influence. And that's why I think it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how when we come out of the darkest part of this as to, you know, can we, can we pull something positive? You know, can, can we, can we, once we hit the, the light at the end of the tunnel, is there anything positive we can pull out from all of what we're experiencing and how it will, oh. how it will influence cinema and cinema oh. we're kind of talking about the experience is changing and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the effects are long-term. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's no, um, it's nothing new that uh, cataclysms and war and uh, social, political and, and uh, medical upheavals uh, uh, set in motion trends in, in the arts generally. I mean, without World War I, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have surrealism or expressionism or a lot of the, you know, the major uh, you know, art developments uh, and uh, horror movies uh, reflect a lot of that, you know, kind of, kind of on a uh, uh, smaller scale. Um, but it is the, uh, it's the area I know about, and so it's the area I'm, I'm, I'm writing about. But the uh, no, the, the the original horror films in in Europe were not escapist entertainment. They were, they were political statements. They were angry statements. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a parable about, uh, uh, about fascism. It's, it's about, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a, a tyrannical male figure who uh, sets forth uh, a uh, mind controlled sleepwalker to kill and be killed. And, uh, you know, which is exactly what a lot of people felt happened in World War One, 
millions of just uh, you know meaningless deaths and and it, it uh, it's a, it's a theme of uh, uh, gods and monsters of course which is another reason I uh, wrapped up the first revised edition of the monster show with with that and I thought it was an extraordinary story and an extraordinary film um, so that's it. We're, we're, we're living it. it. It's like a William Castle movie where it's all jumped off the screen at us and uh, is confronting us in the aisles and at the concession stand and outside the theater. And uh, it's uh, that, that uh, the, uh, oh, that one Argento film, Demons. Uh, yes, yes. Comes, comes to mind uh, immediately, uh, just this relentless, things crawling off the screen or demons too crawling off out of the television set. Um, yeah, the, these films really speak to us right now. I, I don't think I'm the only person going back and looking at those two films these days either. Do you think they, those have prepared us to deal any better with what's happening in real life or uh, does it frighten us even more? You know, it gets back to that, that whole, uh, the, the whole uh, classical uh, theory of catharsis in the arts about uh, uh, purging yourself of, uh, through pity and terror and then being able to um, get back to life. Uh, I think it's a temporary fix. I think it's something we definitely do with, with, with horror movies. We, uh, we do like our horrors not to look... Uh, not to hit too close to home, you know, and that's why it's always more palatable, you know, with a, uh, uh, behind a horrible makeup or uh, you know, something very, very distorted. Uh, there are reasons for those distortions. We don't want to look too closely in that mirror. Uh, the reasons vampires don't reflect in mirrors, I think, is because we'd see ourselves and that would be uh, very unacceptable um, because all of, all of these horrible things are coming out of the human imagination. They're not coming from outer space, although sometimes we pretend they are. Let's think back to perhaps a happier time growing up. You grew up in uh, the Cleveland suburb, is that right? Yeah, right. Well, what was like life like for you? Were you a monster kid from the beginning? Is there a certain point where, when you got interested? You said you've never been afraid of them, really. No, I was fascinated. I, I think I, I think the first movie I ever saw, it's a toss-up. It was either King Kong, which I saw in a, it's a it's a three-way toss-up actually. It, King Kong and The Wizard of Oz were re-released in theaters in the, in the mid '50s, and I was taken to those. And in 1958, I saw on television. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, part of the original shock theater package. And that is the one that, uh, it, it's interesting, all these initial things you remember about being exposed to movies, because I probably saw all kinds of things. Uh, the, the ones that stick are the ones with, with, with the monsters uh, or, the, uh, or the winged monkeys or, or uh, uh, the, the uh, but, but I remember that scene at the end where Lugosi as the monster is re-energized and he smiles as he, as the energy courses into him. 
And that I just thought was so cool. And it got me interested in, in robots and, and, uh, and various things like that. And I, I just couldn't put it out of my mind. And the, uh, and by the age of 10, which is when I first discovered the, the, the monster magazines, um, it all coincided with the, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I just became this rabid uh, consumer of uh, anything uh, Forrest J. Ackerman would, would put out there. And there were the fan clubs and, and the, there, there was no video on demand. Uh, there was no home video of any kind. There, uh, you couldn't just access a movie, but you could, you could celebrate it and, and, and relive the story through these magazines and the pictures and they're, they're you know, they were picture driven uh things or you could when something wasn't on television you could take your little reel-to-reel tape recorder and get the soundtrack to uh, and and if you were really ambitious the way i was and a lot of a lot of kids were at the time you could take your eight millimeter camera to the backyard or the basement and make your own homage to uh, dracula or frankenstein and and uh, a lot of us did this. Some of us became Steven Spielberg. Uh, not all of us, of course, but, but uh, it, was, it was a very heady time. And a lot of, uh, a, a lot of big names uh, in popular culture got their start through uh, monsters and horror. Possibly because it's, it is a surefire uh, way to make money. It's, it's a rare horror movie that uh, doesn't earn back its costs very quickly. And so it's, uh, it's easy for, for a production company to take a chance on a younger director or somebody who isn't all that experienced, uh, but is uh, uh, motivated and animated. And, uh, and there we have it. And, and, and uh, Francis Coppola uh, came this route. So many, and uh, it's, it's like it was this dormant thing in the uh, American creative imagination. Uh, in Europe, the fantastic was always part of the cinema from the very, very beginnings. Dreamlike, uh, uh, Georges Méliès uh, you know, in, in France and all the, the trick photography and strange monsters and uh, things just uh, impossible and and, uh, and, and, and wonderful. And that it took a while for America to get into the groove because in the silent era, there were scary stories and scary characters. There weren't any supernatural monsters. You know, there, there, uh, a, a film like, you know, The Thief of Baghdad is a rare, uh, foray into, um, in, in, into fantasy. And it wasn't until uh, the dawn of the talkies when Universal took the chance on Dracula that this dormant impulse toward the fantastic was just released in all of its, uh, all of its wonderful energy. And it's continued and continued. And uh, at, for many decades, uh, these kinds of movies, the kinds of movies we like, were uh, they were the B pictures or the C pictures or they didn't you didn't find 
names like James Whale and Todd Browning in the indexes of film history books until uh, well after the 70s and in, in, into the 80s. Uh, this stuff just wasn't taken seriously, but uh, it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the way that, uh, you know, Halloween has become the, uh, the biggest uh, commercial holiday uh, outside of Christmas now in America. And uh, back at the beginning, in you know the 30s, um, there were there were no uh, Halloween tie-ins with horror movies, um, and then uh, and and now it, it's such a crowded market, you know, in October that uh, all the people who'd like to release things uh, can't release them. It is a so it's gone it's gone from the the margins to the center, and now the biggest grossing films of all time are usually these summer blockbusters that feature some element of, uh, of horror or the fantastic and, and uh, spectacular monsters and, and creature effects. And uh, it is, uh, it's the heart and soul of Hollywood. And it always had been. Some of us knew. <laughs> so growing up, did you have maybe any resource material? I mean, you mentioned Forrest J. Ackerman. Uh, but maybe something that was an inspiration to you that, that led to you wanting to start writing about these monsters. Uh, for me, Classics of the Horror Film by William K. Everson was a Bible that I had back in the 70s. It was like the movies that he, you know, that was my checking list. You know, I was like, okay, have I seen that? Have I seen that? Because you mentioned back then there were no on-demand, there was no videos. If it was a playing at 10 o'clock on a, on a Saturday night, you had to be awake at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night or you might miss it. So, so getting those, those rare books as they would come out for me was, was kind of like, almost like a, a holiday, you know, wish book from Sears. It's like, oh, I want to see that. I want to see that. What were some of your inspirations? Well, the, uh, the very first one was for me, it was back in the 60s with uh, Carlos Claren's An Illustrated History of the Horror Film. And it was this uh, big hardcover book from a major publisher, G.P. Putnam's. And uh, it laid out the whole story of, uh, uh, of, of these movies in a way that uh, the magazines didn't. They were kind of piecemeal. They would focus on um, kind of a kaleidoscope of, of films without ever putting it into a, uh, a kind of sequential order. And uh, Clarence was groundbreaking in that way because he really uh, said, hey, here's something that just has not been fully documented. And so that, that, that book, uh, I'm sure, was in the back of my mind when I uh, suggested uh, to my publisher that uh, I do the monster show. And people ask me often, why do you write the kind of books you write? And I say, I write the books that I can't find to read. Uh, that I'm, you know, subjects that I'm curious about, and it's just not all out there, you know. And I, I did put I put away these films for you know, a, a long time. I had a uh, after college, I went to uh, uh, the East Coast, and I worked in the theater and the performing arts for for uh, almost a quarter century. And toward the end of that stint, I had. Uh, made enough uh, connections in uh, in the theater and also in film 
that uh, I stumbled across the original negotiation files for Dracula, both the stage version in the 20s and the film version of 1931. That, uh, and it was, I just found it to be a gold mine. And it, it was the day to day back and forth and the personalities were so, oh, the gossip, the, there was just people dishing each other, people, uh, people trying to uh, get rich by controlling Dracula and, you know, you, you don't control Dracula. And a lot of people have found that out over, over the years. Uh, he's uh, tends to put people in their, their place. But uh, anyway, that's where, that's where Hollywood Gothic uh, came from. And um, I thought it was going to be a, a one-off. I really didn't think I was going to be uh, 30 years later, I would be, uh, this would be the center of my life. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, not too many people who publish books get to uh, uh, carve out a niche that uh, serves them so, so well. Uh, I, if you ask me early on what kind of a writer I might want to be, I probably want to be a, you know, a well-respected novelist. Uh, uh, or something along those lines. But I uh, met Vincent Price on a number of occasions and once was in a theater class in San Francisco where uh, he was kind of holding court and all the kids were uh, spread out around, the, around him on the floor and he was seated in a high chair and I was down there with them on the floor and uh, somebody asked him, Mr. Price, Mr. Price, don't you resent being typecast as a horror actor? And he said, he said, my goodness, no. If you are lucky enough to be typecast, if you are lucky enough to have some, some skill or some talent that uh, people will use over and over and over again, you are, you are the luckiest actor in the world. And the same could be said for you know, uh, being a writer. Um, it's, uh, it's very difficult. You, pe people ask me all the time, how do I have a career just like yours? And I tell them first, keep your day job. <laughs> this is not anything easy. And, uh, if anybody tells me, uh, I think I'd like to be a writer. And I say, no, you, no, you don't. You're, if you, if you have to think about it, you're not. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it's a, uh, it is really, I, I got a lot of encouragement from a lot of wonderful people um, along the way. Uh, I had a lot of talent, but it was, uh, a lot of people have talent that they never do anything with or never focus it into a, in, in, into a viable uh, kind of form and uh, somehow uh, often stumbling along the way I've, I've done it. I'm very, very, very grateful because uh, nobody's pulled off this, this feat of just kind of uh, being permanently in print and, uh, and, and constantly cited and quoted. And uh, um, I just wrote a book that I couldn't find to read anywhere. <laughs> that was, that was it. Well, that's a great place to wrap it up. You certainly 
uh, are an inspiration to us. Uh, to me, you have been. And just thank you for spending time with us. Well, thank you, and uh, have, a, have a great Halloween. Don't uh, take candy from strangers, but you're not going to have to worry about that this year. But, uh, oh, tell us where we can uh, get Fright Favorites, I assume, at our favorite booksellers? You can. It's, it's available uh, generally just about anywhere, all your online books, bookstores. But uh, I'm only working with one uh, vendor for signed copies out here in California. Uh, Dark Delicacies Books in Burbank is my official uh, designated uh, go-to place to personally inscribe books to people. And they're very easy to uh, find online. They're at darkdel.com. And uh, they'll take good care of you. And I've been uh, signing more books um, during this pandemic than I have for other other book launches and uh so i hope uh hope it'll get you through october i hope people have fun with it uh i love hearing from you uh can't see you in person but uh, uh you can follow me on facebook uh, and uh let me know what you uh, what you think well i gotta ask real quick you've got something i think our, this episode may come out after your night on turner classic movies um, I know you, you recently did some filming. You're doing some work with them in, in October. Is that the start of, of uh, maybe a, a partnership that's going to continue in the, in the future? Oh, I'm not going to anticipate. I, I love these people. I've worked with them uh, on smaller things in, in, in the past. Okay. Uh, you know, if they want, if this does well, I'm sure they'll ask me to do Fright Favorites too, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump at the chance. Uh, the, uh, on October 2nd, I will be joining uh, the TCM host, Dave Carger, to introduce four films that will run all night uh, from, from the book. We'll be doing uh, Dracula, Cat People, House on Haunted Hill, and The Haunting, uh, one from each decade, uh, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. And we, uh, we uh, recorded the introductions just the other day uh, via Zoom. And next, uh, I guess, a week from Friday night, you'll get to uh, get to see them. And you mentioned the videos. You're doing one every day during the month of October. Where can we see those? Uh, just keep following me on Facebook. I will um, give you all the instructions. I'm I'm revamping my uh, website, which has been pretty dormant for a long time, um, monstershow.net. But uh, the videos will be on YouTube, and they will you can link to them on Facebook uh, or uh, from, uh, uh, from my website. And, um, let's see if I've, 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 I'm just getting that hang of this. I haven't, uh, uh, I, it's all, it's always been intimidating. You know, I've had, I've worked with my documentaries. I've just had wonderfully talented people, you know, around me, camera crews and, and wonderful, uh, editors and sound technicians. And, uh, I never dreamed it was as easy as it seems to be now, but I'm just getting my feet wet with my first uh, uh, first attempts at uh, uh, self-promotion, and uh, you'll have to tell me how it how it works out. But I'm going to give the green screen a workout and uh, have all kinds of uh, video software I'm having fun with, and 
I will, uh, hopefully I will improve from uh, between October 1st and October 31st. But uh, yeah, uh, social media video is uh, it. We're, I think we're moving into a post literary uh, uh, stage of human evolution. And uh, books and reading were, were nice, but uh, we're getting back to the oral tradition of, of folklore and telling stories around the campfire. And nothing, nothing is written down, and so you can feel free to improve on it and pass it along in a slightly different form. Um, um, I've always loved it. I, I, I loved uh, books as much as I loved movies and TV when I was a kid. It was all just uh, storytelling and uh, pure storytelling. And uh, I will keep at it in whatever format is available to me. Well, you're doing well, great so far. Yeah. And I think this year for Halloween, when it's going to be different for so many people, you're going to be a great guide for us and a companion to have along. So thank you very much. Yeah, we'll definitely, well, thank uh, we'll definitely uh, share your information as you make it available. We'll put it out on our Facebook page and, and I'll put it out on, on my blog and Jeff will probably do the same. So we'll get the word out so that uh, uh, people can have a, an enjoyable Halloween season. Absolutely. No, it, it's everybody's favorite holiday and it always will be and nothing will uh, stop the enjoyment, I predict. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care now. I feel like we said it a hundred times, but, but seriously, thank you, David, for joining us in the, in the conversation. It was a great time, and I hope you're serious. I hope you'll come back sometime. Maybe we can just pick a subject and, and talk about it, uh, and definitely looking forward to his new book. We referenced the Friday night introductions that he hosted with Dave Carger on TCM. That was actually last Friday night. I think Rich and I both recorded that and have seen bits and pieces of that. That's where I referenced that he spoke about the cat people and the imagination of that. He had insights into all four movies that they showed. Rich, what of those have you seen or what else have you heard about what David's doing this month for Halloween? Yes, I, I recorded all those as well. I watched the, uh, the intro and outro for Dracula Carla and I had just watched that on Blu-ray like two nights earlier. That's one of her favorite movies. She actually went ahead and watched the movie a second time, uh, which is amazing in itself. I actually, she actually outlasted me. I was tired and fell asleep, but I, I did see the intro and outro and it was just, it was great seeing him on, on TCM. Cat People is already on our list of movies we were going to watch this year. So we're just going to watch that off of TCM. Definitely want to see his intro and outros for, um, House on Haunted Hill and The Haunting. I hope to see him back on TCM. I think that with the way they did it, of course, in this crazy pandemic world that we're living in, you got to do things virtually these days. And I think it worked out perfectly fine. A little different, maybe not as personal of having him in the studio, but it was great seeing him on, on the air. And you know what? The book, let's just say it again. I mean, this, this book is, I've got it right here in front of me, is, is uh, an awesome little book. Actually, it's not little. It's a, it's a smaller size, but it's a nice, thick volume and incredibly well done, which I know I mentioned probably more than once during the interview. It's an incredibly well done book with a lot of information packed in. And I just have to reiterate again, I love the fact that 
you basically you've got double features because he talks about invasion of the body snatchers and then you know if you enjoyed you might also enjoy invaders from mars and i think that's just a, an awesome feature of this book something fun and accessible and you know this is going to be going out early in october plenty of time to get this thing ordered from amazon have it to you in a couple of days and play catch up and come up with your own 31 days of halloween with this book this would be a perfect guide someone new into the genre or uh, someone like me that loves to dust off the classics on halloween you know i always like to see new stuff and watch movies halloween 12 months out of the year anyway but october is one i i always go for the big guns i always try to go for the for the classics the karloffs the vincent prizes the lugosi's the frankensteins the mummies that's that's what i try to go for in october this would be a perfect guide for anybody you know we did that interview over zoom so we were watching him and, and talking with him interacting not just audio but with video and that oh that's a whole phenomenon in itself because i really i think that's a different type of connection to then see him on tv looking very much like he did on my little computer screen when <laughs> i'm having a personal conversation with him it just makes it all so cool i think <laughs> and, no, I, no, I agree i agree wholeheartedly there's there's a uh, as you and i've talked about when you moved to uh, Minnesota, the, the concern was if we were to do things over the phone, we wouldn't be able to see each other and feed off of each other. And I think that was a perfect example of being able to see him. We were able to kind of feed off and have the conversation, even though you and I misspoke over or spoke over each other probably a few times because we were just both excited to get something in when talking to him. Being able to see during a conversation is is what uh, I think is very, very important. That was something fun. And yeah, seeing him on TCM, you can say, we know him. Exactly. And we had a conversation with him, a face-to-face -face virtual conversation with him. It's kind of like knowing Sam Irvin, you know, and, and whenever he has something, you know, coming out on Facebook, it's like, I always kind of sit there and it's a bragging point. I, I have no shame in admitting that even when he's doing his movies for what's a lifetime and then his highest Christmas movies, he did one last year, I think. And I, I kind of, it was a bragging point to Carla's mom. I was like, you know, I, I know the director of one of these movies that you just watched, you know, and she's like, really? You know, and it's like, yeah, I'll, I, I own it. No shame. And usually in connection with that, you know, we're Facebook friends. So I just, you know, I cut and be succinctly as possible. I have a friend that directed this, you know, and I have a friend who wrote that book. So it's not Absolutely. a lie, technically. And no, it's not. It's not. That's the one thing about this virtual world we live in is that we can actually make connections with people that if you would have told me, you know, 20 years ago that I would know somebody in Australia or that I would be talking to an author of a book, I would have like looked at you and laughed. It's like, oh, come on. No, now it's a reality. And, and that's, that's the positive side of social media. And so I think in these times when we see so many of the negatives, let's focus on the positives and our opportunities to do some of these virtual things, I think is fantastic. And I hope uh, continues in the future. And I also think that's something positive that is going to be coming out of coronavirus and being isolated and alone are the connections that we've made. You know, in the old days, Rich, I think they used to be called pen pals. Yes. Maybe we could have hoped to uh, write a nice letter to David J. Skull and he writes back and we can say, oh, he's my pen pal. 
it's all virtual now, right? Yeah. I mean, pen pals were, were cool. This is like uh, taking it to the next level. It's like, not only are we uh, virtual pen pals, it's like we've actually had a conversation with them as opposed to just reading a letter, which in itself would be cool and was cool back in the day. It's, it's just even cooler now. Yeah, we're fanboying a little bit here. We had a lot of fun talking to him and uh, hope that we can have him back on the show in the future. And we told him before we started that the, the theme of this episode was going to be vintage horror movie reference books. We asked him and he mentioned a, a couple books or at least one, you know, that he grew up with. We asked some other people that uh, are our listeners and our friends and we've got some of their comments and then Rich and I are going to share what some of our favorites are. We will dig into that right after this break. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Okay, well, we're going from one author to the next. We're just hobnobbing with the stars this episode. <laughs> that was a promo for Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, written by our good friend, Mr. Stephen D. Sullivan. This book is out and available now on Amazon and anywhere else you can get books. I've got it in my hand as I'm talking here. Man, this is this is his best looking book, courtesy of some amazing artwork from Mark Maddox. Uh, it is by far his thickest book, and it is on my reading list for the Halloween season. I have not started it yet, but it is early in the month. In fact, it's, it's going to be something I'll be picking up here and start in the next week. I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations. Uh, it's come from Walkabout Publishing, and I know that Steve is going to be doing a lot of stuff in the next month about that, promoting it and stuff. I've already done it myself and we'll continue to, to help him out as well. Congratulations on that. You know what? Why don't, we, why don't we hear from Steve right now? He called in with his thoughts on reference books and what he used to use back in the day and what he uses now. He surprised me a little bit and I think we'll talk about that on, on his uh, answer. In some ways he didn't. So why don't we take a listen to see what he had to say. This is Steve Sullivan. It is late on the night before you're going to record and I remember that you wanted some advice on books that one used to use to look up classic monster facts. And boy, that's a really tough one. <laughs> because a lot of the stuff that I use for classic monster facts just kind of comes out of my head because I've seen so many movies. And before that, I mean, I got a lot of that stuff from uh, Forry Ackerman's famous Monsters of Finland, which is uh, obviously a thing for for people my age and, and 
slightly older and, and somewhat younger too. So there was a lot of that stuff that just seeped into my brain and, and I kept it there. And I know that I had, you know, like a, some classic horror film guide kind of books and, and books on uh, science fiction television and that kind of stuff that I've had lying around. But honestly, since the Internet came along, I've really packed all that stuff away. And, you know, I it's not even close enough at hand that I could dig it out and look at the titles of it. You know, I used to have volumes that were just on specific subjects like King Kong or Dracula and that kind of stuff. I didn't, uh, I'm too old to have gotten any of the Crestwood horror books, which I know a lot of, uh, a lot of younger folks grew up with. Um, so boy, I don't know if that's a great answer, <laughs> but now we have the internet. So, so do we need it anymore? You know, I, I still have a, a large reference library for my writing that I, barely ever use anymore unless it really gets esoteric because the internet has so much stuff and often if I've read it I can just go onto the internet and refresh my memory on it so uh, is that a cheater's answer I don't know I'm going to steal Rich's glory here and and explain how this surprised me I think we're pretty much the same Steve you are an author you are selling a book how can you not have go-to reference books? Now, that's, uh, you know, a disclaimer there because you do have an encyclopedic mind and your, your claim that you have all this knowledge in your head, that, I've seen it demonstrated, that's true. But I, I'm just kind of surprised you don't have, you know, physical forms of, of reference that you go to when you write. The more I think about it, though, it doesn't surprise me as much because Steve has embraced modern technology uh, I know that he is an avid ebook reader, and I'm not. I've tried years ago, and I just don't like it. I, I don't like reading a book off of a screen. I would much rather have the dead tree in my hands and read that way. A longtime book collector, and that's just something that I, I love the internet, and I love the accessibility to information. When I'm reading a book, I've got to have it in my hand. But he's embraced technology, and I think that that's cool, though. Sad to hear that he's got all these books sitting in boxes and not gracing the shelves and, and, and seeing the light of day. As you said, he, he does have a wealth of knowledge and he has the right to brag because he can certainly spout off information that I've never even heard of. The whole concept of researching on the internet. Sure, there's a vast wealth of information. This is probably a rhetorical question, but can you believe everything that you find on the internet? That's one thing. I'm gonna uh, maybe go on a brief tangent. One of the things I've been trying to do on my blog, classichorrors.club, is, and I, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but I felt personally, if I'm writing and researching to write about a movie, I feel lazy if I'm just looking on the internet. Again, I don't mean that as, as bad against anyone else. I know it takes a lot of time, a lot of work, Sometimes you have to dig to find what you're looking for, but that coupled with the fact that I have so many books and magazines I've collected over the years, I felt I was at a point where I wanted to start using them. That's what I do now uh, on at least one of my posts on the, on the blog is any references I do from the original source. Now, the flaw with that is that that is of that time and we know so much more now than we did then so that I'm, I'm making a case for internet now. 
but I've embraced that and knowing that because that adds a vintage feel to it. You know, if I'm doing research and writing about a classic horror film, I'm refreshing myself with what was said about it at that time. And I think that is interesting. And that's just the approach I've taken to it. There are different approaches. I mean, I've gone to the library and looked at books to get information. And that's just my thing. That's what I've been trying to do. I, I like that, the way that you're, uh, you're including the references to those books, because I feel like there's information in books, and I, we'll talk about this, at least I'll talk a little bit more about it when we get into our personal favorites. There is stuff in books that you can't find on the internet. Yes, the internet gives you up-to-date information, because certainly the older the book, missing details or misinformation, stuff that we know now maybe to be more correct, can maybe make some books, I don't want to say obsolete, but maybe a little less reliable. However, I still feel that there's great books being published and, there, and that there's information in those books that you can't find on the internet, at least not all in one place. There's pros and cons of, of having just saying, well, I just do the internet or I just do books. Do a combination of the, of the two. And I think that way you can get a more complete picture. And I also, just from a nostalgic perspective, I think that uh, I get a kick out of reading some old stuff to hear uh, a perspective from decades ago where some films maybe were much more revered and a lost film has since been rediscovered. And then it's like, well, it's not quite as great as we thought it was. You know, I mean, that happens all the time where once a movie becomes more accessible, you know, it's not quite the classic that we thought it was. I mean, I think we all anticipate that if London After Midnight was to ever resurface, would it be the classic that we all hope it would be? It would absolutely be fun to see it, but would it meet that expectation? And, and uh, most people who have done any research into that feel like, no, it would not meet the expectations. I don't know. I love the way you do that. And I think that there's pros and cons of, of just going one way or the other. I think a, an amalgamation of books and internet is the way to go personally. Yes, definitely. And it's a generational thing, right? Like if, if we have any uh, younger listeners, their jaw might drop when I talk about, you know, opening a book that's, oh man, 40 or 50 years old, you know, to get information. But I also think it's, what are you producing? If you're producing a short, quick, little review or something, internet is fine. If you're digging deeper, that's maybe when you go back and, and go a little further. Um, now, let's be honest, the internet, as we know, even like with streaming, it can go away the next day, right? There, there can be the, the fantastic website out there. And if the person who's running the website doesn't renew the domain, just, you know, whatever reason, it could disappear overnight and that information is gone forever. We both have blogs and you know been running them for a while. Will they still be out there 20 years from now? Probably not. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But the cool thing is, you know, with a book, 100 years from now, this book could still exist and someone could pick it up and they could they could pick up one of your We Belong Dead books and be reading one of your in-depth articles a century after you're long gone. The likelihood is, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're gonna pass, I'm not saying that you are, but I mean, think about it. Your website would most likely not stay up. May, it might for a while, but eventually it would not 
be on available, it wouldn't be available. So a lot of your posts would disappear. Your book is always going to be there. There's always going to be a copy of it out there somewhere. It's going to be gracing somebody's shelf. It might be at half price books or a used bookstore. Somebody at some point is going to pick up that book and read your article a hundred years after you're gone. Most likely not going to happen on the internet. So that's, that's my big saying is that there is something to be said about books. Modern technology, awesome, but let's not abandon the book technology. Let's not abandon the old book because that's something that I feel is, is going to last longer than, than the internet or at least a website on the internet. Yeah, and when a giant electromagnetic pulse you know, destroys all electronics on earth, our, our books will still be there. Yes, we will have time enough at last. <laughs> oh man, that's my favorite episode. I had to go there. All right. Uh, one last thing that, that Steve said, and, and this ties into the generational thing, he mentions the Crestwood books and how he was just, you know, slightly ahead of those. I'm the same way. I wouldn't know a Crestwood book if it slapped me in the face. I mean, sure, I've seen pictures, but that just wasn't a thing for me. But take someone just even a few years younger, that was a huge thing. And that is the case of our dear friend, Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio. He talks a little bit about that in the feedback he provided us on vintage reference books. So let's take a listen to that. Hey gang, this is Derek from Monster Kid Radio. You know, you're talking about what resources we use to learn about monster movies pre-internet, you know, in this in the dark ages when we weren't able to go online and ruthlessly mock each other on Twitter and, and well, anyway, that's not, you know, so monster movie references. Uh, so, you know, for me, I did not become a monster kid really until I discovered the Crestwood House books in the kids section of the local library. They weren't even in the school library. They were in the local library. In fact, I have very distinct memories of picking them up off the shelf in the kids section of the base library. My dad was military. We moved around a lot on military bases. And specifically, I remember picking him up off the shelf of the base library at F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I know I had picked him up earlier when we lived in Montana, too. But that was my first exposure to these things that we love so much, that these monsters that populate our dreams and, and we obsess about and podcast about and wish we were. So I was just doing a real quick edit on this bit of feedback I was sending you and another book popped into my mind that I do remember picking up. And this book is probably where I first realized that Peter Cushing wasn't just the Star Wars guy. This was the book, the monster movie game. It was by John Stanley, who I would learn many years later was the second host of the TV show Creature Features in California. As I say later in this feedback, I didn't have my horror horse growing up, so I had no idea who he was. How this book ended up in the base library at F.E. Warren Air Force Base, I have no idea. But it was there, and I checked it out a whole bunch. I think it was also in this book that I saw a picture of Oliver Reed as the werewolf from the uh, Hammer film, Curse of the Werewolf, which really stuck with me as well. But... It wasn't just that. Once I learned how to use the microfiche system in high school, I would constantly be looking up whenever they'd get some new material. I would be constantly, every month, whenever new material was sent to the school library, I would be looking up things like Karloff, Cheney, Lugosi, Jack Pierce, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, you know, whatever I could 
remember from when I had read those Crestwood House books because they were library books. I didn't have them with me anymore. So I just had to try to remember. I'd also look things up in the encyclopedia, which wasn't really all that helpful. I was getting Fangoria magazine and even Gorezone magazine at the time, but they really didn't talk about the classics. You know, they were more about the modern stuff and... You know, I enjoyed that, too, a lot. And because of that, I'd also look up things like Tom Savini in the microfiche catalog to see if there were any new magazine articles about him. And really, all I remember finding is a bunch of negative reviews about his remake of Night to the Living Dead. You know, it really was just hoping that I would find something in a magazine or a newspaper or at the video store. I didn't grow up in a city that had a horror host. It wasn't until I got a job at the local video store Blockbuster video, no less. Remember those? Yeah. So I was working at the Blockbuster video store and they had these catalogs. I wish I could remember what they were called, but you could look up an actor and it would give you a list of every single movie they had ever been in. It was an amazing reference that we kept off in the corner from everything. And I spent many times on shift just flipping through that and looking up movies and trying to learn as much as I could. I think it was at that point that I had learned that one of Peter Cushing's very early roles was a, was it Laurel and Hardy? You know what? I don't know. Let me go online and check the internet since I do have that now. Yes. One of his very first films was a chump at Oxford in 1940. I'll tell you what, let me cross-reference that with what I just found at Wikipedia. Isn't this exciting podcasting, listening to somebody poke around on the internet? But I think that's kind of the point, right? That's what you're talking about, is how we used to look up movies versus how we look them up now. I didn't get Famous Monsters of Filmland. I didn't get any of that stuff. I had to rely on whatever I had access to at the time, and that catalog was really it. And no, uh, Jump at Oxford was not his first feature film. He started appearing in films in 1939, but it's very, very early in his career. It was also while working at that blockbuster video that I started buying the VHS tapes of the classic monsters. It was right around then when Universal was releasing the Universal Monsters Classic Collection with the classic monsters, each on their own individual VHS tape with the really cool cover art. I bid you welcome. MCA Universal Home Video announces... The Universal Monsters Classic Collection. These are the titles monster fans have been waiting to sink their teeth into. Frankenstein. Dracula. The Wolfman. And it was really there that I learned the absolute most about a lot of these movies. is just absorbing the VHSs. Famous Monsters did end up making a slight comeback a few years later, but... It wasn't the same. It was the Ray Ferry edition of Famous Monsters of Filmland. But it had some material. But at that point, the internet was a thing. And I was able to look things up online and go to the Classic Monsters Film Board and listen to podcasts. And, well, here we are. You guys are awesome. I love the show. I know I don't send in feedback. I've just been so busy. But I do listen, and I'm loving it. You guys are awesome. Huge thumbs up from Monster Kid Radio and Derek. <laughs> Take care, guys. Thank you, Derek, so much for calling in. You know, uh, we would be remiss to say if, if we uh, didn't acknowledge that both Steve and Derek are award winners for their own rights. Uh, Steve is an award-winning author, and of course, uh, Derek from his uh, award-winning podcast. Derek has always talked about those Crestwood books, and as you said before we start listening to his feedback, 
it wasn't a thing for me either. I don't recall looking at those at the library. You know, I remember seeing like some reference books at the library, the school library, but I just, they're phase, they're just kind of hazy memories. I can't quite remember the books themselves. I do have memories of reading reference books at our main public library in Newton, not monster related, but I have memories of a Tarzan of the Movies book and a Laurel and Hardy book, which I have both of those now in my personal library. Crestwood, I know for a lot of people, it was, is their go-to. They talk about it. They're hard books to find in good condition and at a reasonable price. That was Derek's go-to. And uh, it was not, not a surprise that he would talk about that. Yeah, really good to hear from, uh, from Derek and his thoughts on that. Made me think about the fact that, again, the Crestwood books are probably not going to give you any information that you, you couldn't find a gazillion other places, but there's a nostalgic feel for, for those books, which kind of just, I'm going to you know, feed off of what I was talking about before we listened to Derek's voicemail, was that I feel that there's a nostalgia feel when you find a book that you're familiar with the author or you're familiar with the book. I don't get nostalgia feel by going to a website. You know, again, old school, I guess. Not that I don't embrace the internet, but there is, again, just something cool about having a book. I love getting a book that's, that is actually used and something, this is the old man in me, I guess, coming through now that as I get a record or as I get a book and I know that it's been used, read, played by other people, how many people have owned this book? How many people have owned this record? That's a cool thing for me just to kind of sit and think about when I'm listening to one of my records, whether it's jazz, Frank Sinatra, a soundtrack, if it's mine that I have from the day that I know I'm the only one that's ever touched this, but if it's one that I, I bought, which is a bulk of my vinyl collection now, it just amazes me. It's like, how many people own this? One person, 10 people? I have some Frank Sinatra records that actually had a name on it. And I know that we bought those in Oklahoma. And I did a search and was able to find out who the, the guy was. He was from Oklahoma City and had passed. He had died, I think, like five years ago or something. It was recently he had passed. And so my mind is like, this was his vinyl record collection. He may have had this. He may have been the only person who ever listened to this record before it got to me. He's passed. It went on to the record store and I bought it at the record store. And now I'm listening to it and will hold it in my collection until I pass. And I hope that it goes to someone else. It's the same with the book. You know, some of the books that you, that you have, I mean, they're, they're older books when I buy them at, at half price and know that one person, 10 people have had it. Who knows? To me, that's, it's almost like you're, you're getting something that's being passed from one generation to the next. And that's something you don't get with a website. Very well said. I have a couple comments from Derek's. Uh, first of all, he asks the question, what in the world were these Crestwood books doing on this military base library? And I have a one word answer for you, Derek. I know exactly why we're there. And it's called fate. <laughs> fate that those were there. And look where you are today. The other thing I wanted to comment on, you mentioned Fangoria. And I just wanted to add that the very early issues of Fangoria did include quite a bit about classic horror. The very first issue had Godzilla on the cover, and there are articles about Hammer films in those early issues. You know, everyone thinks of Fangoria as the kind of 
opposite of famous monsters of film land that it's gorier and it's more of the 80s movies but it actually started out as more oh even Kielder had more variety uh, and then just really you know got into the gore later on as that was uh, you know a reflection of what the movies were doing in the 80s so check out those early issues both Steve and Derek talked about famous monsters being kind of a, a reference point for, for them. Derek less so, right? Because he had, you know, for him it was Fangoria, but eventually it's, it's something, you know, that wasn't necessarily because of his, of his upbringing, wasn't necessarily something he had great access to with, with Steve. He did. I, I kind of relate because I didn't have, I wasn't as sheltered as Derek, but I was sheltered from scarier stuff until I got into the 80s. I could watch the classic stuff, but there was no way my mom was going to let me watch The Exorcist in the 70s. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. Watching on HBO late at night, you know, and I wasn't supposed to be watching. That's where I started watching all my horror movies in the 80s. And so I wasn't a famous monsters kid. I, I picked up a couple of random issues. I couldn't get that stuff. I could get Starlog eventually as I got older, but that was of course more sci-fi, but there was, you know, some, like Clash of the Titans, I think was covered in there, some fantasy stuff. Famous Monsters is something that I, I don't have a connection to. I have a few issues. I've got a cover hanging on my wall. It was signed by Basil Gogos. I mean, it's a magazine that I've had in my collection since the eighties, but I only had a handful of them there's just not a connection for me to, to, to famous monsters. So I think everybody's got a connection to something from, from their childhood. And for me, it wasn't magazines. There's one book in particular, as we segue into talking about our own personal references, that to me is like my famous monsters. So I think for, for others, it depends on when you grew up. I think some people are going to say famous monsters. Others probably are going to be in the same boat as me. They just didn't they came along maybe a little later when famous monsters started to change or you know if there even came along later when famous monsters was in one of its second incarnations and nothing like the original which i did have a few of those yeah it was it was definitely a very different magazine we failed to mention that derek is also an author i am holding in my hands his book supernatural solutions the mark temple case files volume 1 and this is a book of short stories about the, the character he created, Mark Temple, who, like this says, well, I guess it doesn't say, but Mark Temple is a monster hunter for hire. These are great short stories. I really enjoy this volume. It's a, a, a nice, slender, readable volume. And uh, when we finish this segment, we will play a promo for it. And I have to say that it is on my reading list as well. I've got both books in my media room, ready to be uh, ready to be read uh, this Halloween season. They're at the top of everything else that, you know, you always have the huge list of stuff. I've got three books that my goal is to make it through by the end of October. Fright Favorites, I want to read that cover to cover. Steve's book and Derek's book. And Derek has been doing readings from the book over at his, I'm going to screw up the name, uh, Monster Kid Club, right? Monster, Monster Kid, Kid movie. movie Club. I think. Monster Kid Movie Club. See, because in my mind, it's, you know, my, you know, Monster Movie Kid. No, it's Monster Kid Movie Club that he continues to do on Saturdays. Monster Kid Movie Club. Sorry, Derek. I try to join 
every week, even if I just kind of slip in and take a peek. I, I was in there briefly yesterday taking a peek and I've, I've seen some great stuff. And so he's been adding readings and he's stirring up the format a little bit, adding uh, some independent films and doing some fun stuff over there. Check it out. Again, if you don't uh, go for the movies, uh, go for his readings. He's got, I know he's going to be, he said he's going to do that again in October. He's, he's done one and I caught part of that. It was awesome. Highly recommend both books to be on anyone's movie list or reading list for uh, Halloween season. There's more to Halloween than movies, believe it or not. Enough of these other people. Let's talk about ourselves. <laughs> Rich, tell me about your go-to volume or source for information. Picking up on a theme that I've already been talking about, I still use reference books. I don't cite them like you do, and I probably should. I use them to kind of just add to my knowledge as I'm re researching on the internet when I'm covering movies or a series like I did with my Laurel and Hardy series. I had a few different books that I was referencing. Back in the day, I had one book that was my Bible, My Famous Monsters, and it was Classics of the Horror Film from the Days of the Silent Film to the Exorcist by William K. Everson, who is a film historian, was a film historian. William K. Everson was a film collector who would actually have film screenings from his own personal collection dating back to the 1960s. It wasn't just a gathering of friends and popping a, a film on the projector. He would have notes and research notes and uh, on the, the wonderful, what do they call it? The, the, the purple photocopies back in the day, they weren't photocopies. Mimeographs. But he, mimeographs. Remember that from school, running those off on the mimeograph machine and smelling that ink. He would do that. He would prepare notes for his film screenings. Many of those are actually available now on the internet. So that's a cool thing about the internet is that his original mimeograph notes have been photocopied and scanned and are now available on the internet to see. And uh, this book, to me, it was like, every movie listed in it was like, I want to see this movie. It was on my wish list. And he covers, of course, you know, so many of the classics from White Zombie, The Mummy, Dr. X, you know, all the big stuff. He covered The Ghoul, you know, which was a very hard film to find until the 1990s. I mean, that was a rare film. And then he covers some lesser known stuff. Strangler in the Swamp is always the one that I was like fascinated because there was a picture in it. He did a follow-up book, which I actually just purchased for the first time a couple years ago, just so I can say I have it. This book, soft cover book, it has survived the ages. I have had it now for probably uh, 40 plus years. It has traveled from state to state and has survived 20 moves over the last 40 years. And it is still something that I will pick up occasionally and look at. Doesn't tell me anything I don't know, but I have a lot of connection to, to that book. But, you know, the rest of the reference books are actually uh, more modern ones that I will go to and, and kind of proves my point is that authors put a lot of hard work into their books and there's a lot of stuff in these that you just, it's a culmination of research and getting things from a lot of different sources. For me, I think one of the best books on Hammer horror is The Hammer Story 
The Authorized History of Hammer Films by Marcus Hearn and Ellen Barnes with a forward by Christopher Lee. This hardcover book with Christopher Lee as Count Dracula on the cover is amazing. And there is so much information, so much detail in there from, from cool pictures to uh, you know production history to behind the scenes facts. It's an amazing book. And I have yet to find, in all honesty, a Hammer site online that, that compares to that book. On the other end, you've got Universal Horrors. And one of the best books out uh, for me is Universal Horrors, the studio's classic films, 1931-1946. Written by Tom Weaver, Michael Brunus, and John Brunus. This is a hardcover edition from McFarland Press, so you know it's a little pricey. But this covers so much cool information of the classic films. Again, I've, nothing on, online has come anywhere close to giving you the information on this. Plus, it's got some cool stuff. Like, it talks about borderline films. It talks about the original shock theater package and lists the movies that were included in those. It's an amazing book. Another book, and this one is, is talk about passing on from, from one person to another. I've talked about this before. Keep Watching the Skies, American Science Fiction Movies of the 50s by Bill Warren. This is uh, the late, great Vince Rotolo's copy. This was the original, well, originally produced as two volumes, and then he put it together in a softcover edition, uh, which I believe this is the second edition, and then there was a third edition that came out with some expanded information. This copy came from Vince because he was wanting to buy the, the hardcover edition. So much information, Bill Warren, my gosh, he, he packed in the information in that book. Uh, again, I think this is from McFarland. Yeah, another McFarland book. And it, to me, it's very special because that, that came from Vince's library. And two more recent additions to my library, the Mexican Masked Wrestler and Monster Filmography by uh, the late Robert Bob Cotter, frequent uh, Monster Bash guest. It is hard to find information on Santo films and related Mexican horror films. For now, I think is, is about as definitive as we're going to get. I know that there's a lot more information on these films that has to be out there somewhere. It's hard to find info on Santo online, and it's hard to find those films. I just added another five to my collection, courtesy of Juan from Fifth Dimension Films. I highly recommend you support him if you're looking for Mexican horror films. He's got probably the best collection online. He has every Santo film with English subtitles, which is important because a lot of people sell Santo without the subtitles. One more film I got to mention, or book rather, Human Beasts, the films of Paul Nashi by uh, Troy Howarth. Uh, also met him at Monster Bash. I'm going to say, again, the definitive book on the films of Paul Nashi. A lot of hard work went into this book, a lot of information that I also, you can't, don't think you can find anywhere else on the internet. These are books that, that are at the top of my list of reference books. And aside from classics of the horror film, these are all books that have been in the last, well, I guess, what, 20 years? That says that there's still some great reference books coming out in print. And again, I don't think this information, you can't find all this information on just one site. And so I think that's the, the huge advantage that a print book has over the internet is that, yeah, it may take a little while to find what you need, but it's all there in one spot. You mentioned McFarland. They are actually having a sale right now. I think it's only through the middle of the month, but all of their horror movies, are, horror, movies horror books, 
are 40% off. And that's significant considering their price point, you know, nearly half off. Uh, so I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I've got a little list and I'm kind of contemplating what I should do. You mentioned the Hammer book and oh, that's a tough one because there are a lot of Hammer books and I'm sure they all have their individual sort of slant and a, a, some subset of knowledge that the others don't, but kind of get to a point that you don't know if you really need any more or do you have the definitive everything. And my example with that, tying everything together with McFarland sale is that there is the book Hammer Complete. This is a $95 book and you know they're claiming complete. My question is, what does it have that the others don't? Is it worth that investment? Even if you knock 40%, 50% off, you're still talking 50 bucks. That's pretty hefty price tag. But is that the cheapest you're going to ever get that book? These are the debates. These are the things that keep me laying awake at night. I think with some of these books, when you're looking at a, a book that's in a triple digit range or wherever, I mean, yeah, it's only going to go so far down in price. So you're getting a 50% off deal. Like you're not going to find that book cheaper. Even if, a, if someone was to take these books to like a half price books, half price knows when they get something that's, that's pricey. They do have databases that they search. And so they're not going to throw out a uh, Universal Horrors McFarland Press book for $5. The only way you would stumble upon that is one of those garage sale finds where grandma doesn't realize what she has here and, and is selling it for a quarter. And that's, you know, where you compose yourself, quit the hyperventilating, and then you, you know, you, you pay your quarter and then post about your finds online. That's, it's, that's a rare occurrence. It's not going to happen. It is interesting to think about 20 years down the line, right? There's so many of us right now is the golden age for, for collectors. Uh, I think for collectors of physical media, for collectors of books, you and I, we were part of that generation where we didn't have cable growing up. And so now that we have access to all these movies, it's like, we want all these movies, right? We want all the movies we, we saw. We want all the movies we didn't see. We want all the movies we didn't know we saw. We want all this cool stuff. What's going to happen 20, 30, 40 years down the line when this generation is passing on there's going to be a flood of this stuff on the secondhand market. And maybe then, maybe then you can get your McFarlane books for, <laughs> for cheap. But right now, no. McFarlane does put a, a price tag on their books, but I got to say their books are, are incredibly well done and, and they're worth it. Very much like the We Belong Dead books that you write for. Those are reference books in a way, but you know, a little different because they're articles about movies but there's a lot of research that goes into all of those different films. I know you do a tremendous amount of research. Those books are also a wonderful part of my library. I, I, I have just started to dive into some of those books. There's just so much a wealth of information. They're so beautifully laid out in color and pictures. And those are great books. And they're expensive. They're coming from overseas. But they, they sell out. The price tag only goes up from there. I mean, they've, they've sold out on, well, their Peter Cushing books sold out. I don't think Vincent Price has sold out yet. I don't think. I know several of their books have sold out. Their latest is sold out of its second printing, or if not, it's like going to any day now. And then after that, the books are only going to go higher in price. So sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and go with, put the price tag aside, 
get it when it comes out because you'll end up like me and you miss out on Gamera on the Blu-ray because <laughs> you think it's going to be available in a month. And guess what? In this day and age, we're seeing things that are having a more limited print and a limited run. And uh, if you're not the first one out of the gate to get this stuff, you're going to be crying a month later when you realize that Gamera is selling for $400 online and you're sitting there praying for a second printing somewhere down the line, which may or may not happen. I'm going to talk briefly about a couple of my favorite vintage reference books. I think most people of my age, this is one they would reference. It's called A Pictorial History of Horror Movies by Dennis Gifford. The cover is probably familiar. This I have had since it was originally in bookstores. It is tattered. Pages are literally falling out. I remember taking this to school with me in fifth grade, and I had a friend that kind of liked some of these movies too, and I remember showing it to him and just using the heck out of this book. I got to interject real quick. I almost bought that last weekend. They had that, Juan had that for sale at uh, Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. I asked him about it and I just, he was asking 40, 40 or 45 for it. And I just, I couldn't pull the trigger on it. So It's not that expensive and there are plenty of them around. Uh, I, and I have often thought about getting a one in better shape, but I'm not going to do it. I mean, this a sentimental yeah. value. I don't care if it's falling apart. It's still, the pages are good. I can read it and, you know, it's not faded or anything. That I cherish. But the one I really want to talk about, I don't think it is the, as well known. It's called Horrors from Screen to Screen by Ed Naha. This is a, uh, an encyclopedia. It's got movies. This is a very interesting book. When I in, have been doing research, I can find things in here that I can't find in pictorial history or any of my other reference books. It's not a lot of material. These are very short entries, but some of them are by the movie title. Some are by the monster that was in it. So it's, it's truly an encyclopedia. It is A to Z. Just a couple of things I have found that I couldn't find anywhere else. Destination Inner Space, that has an entry. Uh, I found something about EGA that wow. has an entry. The point is, it's just a, easy to read, lots of pictures. I, and I was going to challenge you. Give me an obscure horror film or, or monster, and I will see if it's in here. And of course it won't be because we're doing this. Okay, obscure horror film. Oh my gosh. Revolt of the Zombies. All right, I am flipping to the R section. Revolt of the Zombies. Yes, it's not a huge entry, but it tells me that's from Medallion Films, 1936. Zombies are trained to fight in wars by patriotic madmen. Dean Jagger, Dorothy Stone, Robert Noland, directed by Victor Halperin. There we go. Anyway, still use it. Still find little bits here and there. Love that book. So those are mine. Kudos to you, sir, for your, your research on the research books. I did not do any modern ones, uh, but there are great ones. I, I'm aware of the ones you mentioned. There's also another group in England that does a, a lot of the Hammer books. And of course, I am blanking on the name, Peveril Publishing. 
and they started a series that was going to be a chronological encyclopedia. They did silence films and they did two volumes of Golden Age. They haven't done any more volumes recently. They've gone and done other books, but those are fantastic. I consider those definitive sources for just encyclopedic information about the movies. Lots of books out there. And, you know, I'll, I'll make the point again, nothing wrong with the modern books. I mean, they have more, the early ones you start out, a lot of them aren't any more than just synopses of the films. Again, that's how we learned about those movies. We'd flip through and we'd say, oh, what's that? What's, you know, four-sided triangle? And we'd read about that and, oh, I want to see that. And we'd watch for it to come on TV. Books today, reference books, are much different. Sure, they have the synopses, but you get the making of and you get the history and, and all of that. So it's just all part of the evolution. It all goes together. Depends what your preference is. We're just lucky we have all these resources in whatever shape or form they come in. I cheated a little bit, I guess, because I, I we were going to talk about vintage. And then I was just like, I started looking at the books and I'm like, Gosh, these, there's so many of these modern books that I feel like we need to, to highlight. Oh, absolutely. You, you mentioned, though, your, your book there that was tattered, and I have one that's similar. It's called Fantastic Television. It's a softcover book that uh, I think you, do you have that? I do, yes. Yeah, I think because I've seen your copy. Your copy is in good shape. Mine, the pages are all falling out of that one. To me, though, I mean, I've often thought about you know, getting a better copy, you know, I was like, but okay, first off, would I use that? No, because Fantastic Television was a episode guide, basically, for top shows that easily can be found a gazillion places online, in my own head, for that matter. But back in the day, for example, Twilight Zone, I didn't see Twilight Zone until the early 80s. We didn't have a UHF station in Wichita, so we didn't have access to a lot of shows. Twilight Zone was playing on Channel 41 out of Kansas City, weeknights at 11 on uh, All Night Live. That was playing, hosted by Uncle Ed. I got out my, my episode guide, and as they were playing the episodes, I would check mark in the book as I watched the episode. There were episodes that they didn't play, and I'm like, well, how come they weren't playing The, the Encounter? Or, you know, how come they didn't play these, these hour-long episodes? And then he changed things up one day. And he started saying, well, we're going to start playing these seldom-seen hour episodes. But there was, I think, one of those that they didn't play. And I was like, I always wondered, how come they didn't play An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge? Well, it's because those weren't in syndication at the time. There were some episodes that were pulled. Uh, the Encounter, for example, uh, features George Takei. And there is some racial slurs towards Asian Americans in that episode that it never played after the original airing and wasn't seen until, I think they put out a special VHS collection in the 90s. And I remember having it that had the lost episodes of the Twilight Zone and they were episodes that weren't available on syndication. There was a couple that there were ongoing disputes over writing rights. And now, of course, all the episodes are available in every Blu-ray DVD package, and they're all available on syndication. But there was a time they weren't. And that book, I think, honestly, looking at that book, probably does not have a check mark by the encounter because I never went back to go check it back off. 
there's a nostalgia feel with that. I still have the Wonder Woman episode guide that I pulled out of Starlog magazine and put in that book. I still have those. They're stapled together and, and in that book. There's no way that I would replace it. Uh, I could get a better copy of it, but that book too has survived 40, 45 years of moves. And it is one that I may not reference much now, if at all, but means a lot to me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't get rid of it for anything in the world. Thank you for sharing all of that. We learn a little bit more about each other, perhaps through that exercise. That was fun. Yes, absolutely. Let's take one more break and we'll come back and we'll, we'll finish the episode in our normal style with our new business and, and features there. So we'll be right back. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Welcome back. This is the part of our show where we do new business, and it is October, the month of Halloween. There should be all kinds of home video releases, birthdays, anniversaries, and all of that for Halloween, don't you think, Richard? Absolutely, you would think. Yes. And my question for you is, we mentioned the McFarland sale earlier. I have not seen any sales yet on movies, but surely there will be horror movie sales this month. I hope not, because <laughs> I, I kind of blew my budget last weekend at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. I bought some Santo films from Juan in my quest to, to have all the Santo films. I'm at the halfway point, and so I started collecting, what, three years ago? I got my first Santo film in 2017. I guess I've got another three years to, to get the, the second half. <laughs> um, I think I've got almost every movie from the 1960s now, except for the very first two films. Wow. Which are coming out on Blu-ray next year, actually, official releases. I was a bad boy last weekend. That, and, and I bought uh, some books from Martin Graham's from his uh, personal collection. He was selling some stuff. So bought, those were a lot cheaper. I hope not. I don't want any big sales. But if Gamera was to somehow pop up somewhere and not be a ridiculous price, I would, I would pull the trigger on Gamera. Uh, if anyone's, yeah, if anyone's picked up, I didn't get Gamera because I didn't realize it was a limited release. It was on my Christmas list. And then all of a sudden I saw somebody talking about, it's out of print and I'm like, what? Yeah, it was a limited release. That little tidbit of info seemed to skip over everything I read and Fortunately, it's now selling for like $350 online, and I know you got your copy, and I'm thankful you did. Maybe I'll look into a, a copy somewhere or a second printing. It's not looking too good at this point. It looks so good in the pictures I've seen, and I'm just I'm having to move past that. It makes me weep. Well, let's I'm see sure if any of these titles are going to cause you any 
financial grief. And, you know, this seems like this happens every year. There's not a whole lot coming out in October. But on the 6th, we have Curse of the Undead from 1959 and The Face at the Window from 1939, both on Kino Lorber. Curse of the Undead's on my wish list, actually. I have that on VHS. I don't have that on DVD. I've seen it. I enjoyed it. The art on that movie poster, if I were to have any vintage piece of an actual movie poster. I love that art. There's another one too that I don't remember right now. It doesn't get talked enough about. That's a fun flick for coming at the very end of the universal cycle, right? That's, I think that's a fun movie. I enjoyed that one. We've talked about it before, but on the 13th, the Friday the 13th collection from Scream Factory comes out. Big old box set with, I, I believe, most every Friday the 13th. They're also putting out a steel book for Motel Hell. And that is when Terror in the Isles comes out. I, gosh, I feel like we've talked about these before, but maybe that was just you and me offline. We talked about Terror in the Isles because I think you asked if I was going to be getting that. And I'm like, I don't think so. I remember seeing it back in the day, but I don't have the nostalgia connection to it that some yeah. people do. I know a lot of people are excited about that, as well as the Friday the 13th set. I, I see people jumping up and down for joy as they're expecting that's going to sell out. And people are already anticipating a sellout and they're selling it, copies of it on eBay for, you know, upwards of like $600. And I'm like, good Lord. I wonder if anyone ever buys them at that price. You see people, they do that with the We Belong Dead books, you know, they jack up the price. But I wonder, you know, you see what people list things at, but do you ever really see what they actually sell them for? Sometimes I think people just throw that up there just to see if there's anyone dumb enough to go ahead and pay. Just yesterday on Facebook, somebody in the physical media page that I'm on posted a sale for Beauty and the Beast near mint condition in its clamshell casing on VHS. They had a uh, a $1 million price tag on it. And the thing is, it's not even mint. There's just cracks on the clamshell. And so people are commenting, it's like, you know you can get this for like five bucks, if you know, if not cheaper, because there's 10 billion copies of Beauty and the Beast out on VHS. And the person was literally said, I put it up there to see if anyone's dumb enough to even enter <laughs> negotiations. Gosh. I don't know. There may be some of that. We also have on the 13th, Warning from Space from Arrow. That's a 1956, I believe, Japanese film? Yeah, that's the one with the big giant star creatures that has been on so many public domain sets for years. I don't know if I'm going to upgrade on that. I, that's not a favorite movie of mine. It's, it's kind of fun and quirky, but it's, yeah, I don't know. That's not worth an upgrade for me. On the 20th, we have Picture Mommy Dead from 1966. I'm familiar with that title, but there are other movies similarly named, so I might be thinking of something else. But what I did not realize is that Bird Eye Gordon directed this. And then I know we've talked about this, Daughters of Darkness, coming out from Blue Underground, one that I definitely want to get. That's the one from this month that is going to cause me financial grief, probably, is Daughters of Darkness, because it's not cheap. Birthdays in October on the 2nd in 1897, Bud Abbott. The 5th of 1919, Donald Pleasance. The 10th of 1924, Ed Wood Jr. The 20th of 1882, Bella Lugosi. And the 28th of 1902, Elsa Lanchester. 
October anniversaries, movies that came out for the first time, and in this case, on the second in 1959 is when Twilight Zone premiered. You mentioned that earlier. On the fourth in 1957, Amazing Colossal Man, speaking of Bird by Gordon. The 10th of 1973, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. We've talked about that in this episode as well as our last one. And then finally, the 29th in 1958, I Married a Monster from Outer Space. We did that in our first drive-in episode, I believe, earlier this summer. And I really, really liked that one. Brings us to the most exciting part of the episode. Richard, what is up with you? What are you doing? Well, it's October. I, I, there's nothing special about this month. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> 31 days of Halloween. I launched my blog eight years ago, which is crazy. I launched monstermoviekid.wordpress.com eight years ago, 2012, with a 31 days of Halloween where I did a random films. Reviews were short, but that was, you know, I dived in and I went 31 Actually, I think it was like 34 days straight of post. Years that have followed, I've done movies. I've, I've looked at Vincent Price and Morris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Random Selections, uh, Theme Weeks. Stirring it up this year, I'm doing old-time radio. There's so many creepy old-time radio shows out there. I am offering up 31 days of old-time radio shows, featuring episodes from shows like Suspense and Inner Sanctum and dark fantasy and hall of fantasy and i'm doing some cbs radio mystery theater from the 1970s boris karloff and peter Lorre and vincent price and orson wells uh, so many good stuff few surprises i'm throwing in there along the way doing some power records on a couple of days doing a halloween record on one day and of course, a couple of the days will be uh, set aside for the Classic Horrors Club. That's what's uh, what I'm doing for the 31 days of Halloween, a little something different this year. Didn't do a, a Kansas City Crypt. I'm taking the rest of the year off. Please continue to listen to the uh, Memoverse Monthly audio cast. And the Kansas City Crypt will likely reopen in 2021. Just wanted to take a little bit of a break from that. And uh, in the last several weeks, there have been some new reviews over at Dread Media. I might do something, never know, with Dread Media, throw up something fun uh, if I get inspired in the next month or so. That would take away a day from old-time radio, but uh, we'll have to see how that goes. What are you doing for Halloween? Well, it's funny. When we were recording last time, I had said I was not going to participate in the countdown this year. I just didn't Liar! prepared. <laughs> And then I had this crazy idea, and so I am doing videos for the first time. Every day I'm sharing one of my favorite scenes from a classic horror film. They're not by any means professional. I'm not gonna win any Emmy Awards or oh. Webby Awards or whatever, but it's fun. I really like it. That's what I'm doing. So you can find those on YouTube actually, not uh, on my blog. And I've been sharing them all over Facebook and Twitter, so you can get to them there. My blog does have a YouTube page. You just search for Classic Horrors Club and you'll find it. I think that might be a segue for what we want to talk about next. And that's our next episode. We've kind of teased it and we've put out a bunch of episodes to reach this milestone. Our next episode is number 50. You've got this YouTube channel that we have not utilized appropriately. Well, that is going to change. Episode 50 is a milestone for us. 
yeah, people can celebrate episode 666 <laughs> and all that stuff. We've made it to episode 50, by gosh. And yeah, we're going to stir up the format like we've been doing all summer long, kind of changing things a little bit up here and there. We'll get back to format in next month. But for right now, episode 50 is coming up and I'm, I'm not going to steal your thunder. I want you to talk about what we're doing. It is a milestone and the start of some some fun stuff we're going to be doing for the future. Yes, our 50th episode, you know, for some we referenced is, is not a terribly large milestone, but for us that's terrific and it's worth celebrating and we want to do that. And the timing coincides with Halloween, which is perfect. This is going to be the launch of our companion YouTube show. It's not going to be the complete podcast. It'll be a highlight show, if you will. We're going to do different video things. You can watch it after or before you listen to the podcast every month. So that, that's very exciting. And to help launch that, to help celebrate Halloween, our 50th episode, we want to ask you, the listeners, to help. We are going to be reaching out to some of you. Please feel free to reach out. To us, if you have a few minutes, we want to make you an active part of this episode. Please leave feedback if you'd like, but we want to incorporate you into the episode. Please let us know if you're interested. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we could really use your help in the celebration. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. We, we've talked about this for a while. It's just finally pulling that trigger on utilizing that YouTube channel and doing some stuff. We talked about maybe putting the show up on YouTube, but i think we've talked about it and agree that that may not be, it's just not the way to go. I think, I think I like your approach. Let's, let's do kind of a, a special bonus, right? Each month it's like, here's the podcast. Then here's some, uh, an addendum, if you will. And, and something fun to hype up the podcast, maybe do some fun, different stuff as we become more comfortable with it. There'll be bonus content, unique content that you'll only find on YouTube. Um, so you can't just listen to one and or just watch one you got to do both we're expanding the classic horrors club brand and <laughs> i think it'll be a lot of fun and i think this uh, episode 50 is the perfect way to kick it off absolutely we will have our opportunity to say happy halloween then we don't need to say that now although the entire month really is halloween and i've even saw people starting to celebrate september 1st halloween now apparently is two months which is fine with me that that's great yeah, the 62 days of Halloween or whatever. <laughs> Countdown to Halloween, 365 posts every single day. Yes, that oh guy, that'd be exhausting. We took a little break and I had started editing and we never did introduce ourselves or say what we were doing. So if people haven't figured it out now, I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com and kccinephile.com. The song we're going to go out on is called V is for Vampire by Powerman 5000. It's from their 2009 album V is for Vampire, available on Apple Music. V is for Vampire is the name of another one of David J. Skull's book. Again, thank you, David. We'll see you next time. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Uh -huh.